Before we get to Romans 14, um, we're actually going to uh, head to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I'd like us to spend a little bit of time there um, because we want to do a quick recap of what Justin preached last week. Um, we want to recall what was discussed in there, and I think we'll, we'll be able to grapple through and work through some of that and then look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as well before we head to Romans 14. So if we recall from Justin's message last week, if you did not have a chance to listen to it, I would encourage you to either go to our YouTube page or go to our website and find that there. Um, that it would be beneficial for you to listen to. I think Justin did an excellent job handling the text. And so if we recall from Justin's message, they were, Paul was addressing a particular issue within the church in Rome. He was particularly looking at a situation where you had a group of people who were not eating meat, what Paul describes as the weaker Christian, and you had a group of people who were, were eating meat, and Paul describes them as the stronger Christian. He says that you, they were strong in faith because they recognized that the freedom that had been granted to them because of the gospel, because of Christ, allows them to eat freely. And, and so they display the, the freedom that they have by eating. And then you have others who, while they are Christians, while they believe the gospel, Paul describes them as weaker in their faith because they have not yet come to grasp and understand the implications of the faith that they have. So Paul navigates through these things, and really what it comes down to, and again, Justin talked about this, is we're dealing with things that are non-essentials, disputable matters. We're not talking about, and I'm probably going to have to preface this a few times and reiterate this a few times because I think it's important to remember we're not talking about core central issues of the gospel. We're not talking about whether or not justification is a thing. We're not talking about whether or not you can be a Christian by just doing a bunch of good works. That's, that's not the central theme of what Paul's addressing. He's dealt with that. For 11 chapters, he's, he spoke gospel. He said, here are the truths of the gospel for 11 chapters to us. So when we come to these sections, really chapters 12 through 16, he's getting very practical with the church. And he's talking to the church specifically now about what are these non-essential things? What are these things that don't quite fit? There's some gray area here that we need to try to figure out because within the church, within these gray areas, you started to have divisions happen where people in the church were eating meat, not eating meat, and there was these conflicts that were taking place. Some of them were probably cultural, Gentile versus Jew, but other ones, as we look around at our current society, are just part of the gray areas of life that the Bible doesn't specifically address. So Paul wants us to understand how we do this. I'm going to share a chart with us. Hopefully you can read that. If not, I'm going to describe it. And I think it's going to help really capture a a helpful way to framework, to frame all of these things. Um, this was something I adapted from a book. The book is called Conscience. It's by Andy Nassali and J.D. Crowley, if anyone's ever interested in reading it. Fairly simple read. But I think it provides a framework for us. Is it, it lays out seven different categories within this chart. What I'm going to do is I'm going to start kind of on the bookends and then work my way in, and eventually we'll find what we get to in summary of the overall theme of this chapter and the overall theme of what we're discussing, what I think Paul's really hitting at and what he wants us to get at. 
So if we go to the two outer categories, I think, I think it's fair to say when we look into these that those outer categories we could rightly describe as people who do not actually believe the gospel. They have erred in their understanding of the gospel itself. If we go to the far right, you have what we would describe as a weak brother, but they've, they've crossed this line into legalism. We would rightly call them a legalist. What they've done is they've taken the gospel and they've added to it. There's all these gray and areas and these things in life that are uncertainties that we would debate about, these disputable, non-essential matters, and they've risen them up to the highest tier and made them essential. So they said, in order for you to be a Christian, you have to adhere to all the standards that I'm laying out for you. It's a legalist. Legalism is that very idea that you're adding to the gospel something you have to do or perform in order to attain salvation, in order to attain right standing with God. If we go to the far left, we have the exact opposite extreme. Again, someone that I think has failed to understand the gospel, but you have someone that is not legalistic, but they're lawless. In fact, so much that they said, the grace of God is present for me, so I can go and live and do however I want. It doesn't matter. Regardless of where we are, either of those end spectrums distorts the gospel. Paul addresses this this section on the left, actually more in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, kind of a parallel passage, not really, but he deals with the same topics. And in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, you actually had individuals who were not only eating meat that was offered to idols, but they were participating in the very idol worship that was happening and saying, I'm good, there's grace, I'm fine with that. That is lawless behavior. That's what Paul describes and says, this is not right. You've erred. You've misunderstood the gospel. If we go in one layer and we look at not the far one on the right, but the one next to it, this one we would be described as, again, another another weak Christian. They have high standards. They they have different opinions about what um, a Christian should do, and they are what we would describe as judgmental, exactly what Paul's saying not to do that they've taken their, their standards and their opinions and their rules that they've laid out and they've said, in order to be a faithful Christian, you have to follow all of these things. So if you are not following these prescribed rules, whatever they may be, then you are not a faithful Christian. On the left-hand side, you have a, a Christian who says, I have freedom to do what I would like, I have freedom in Christ to do this certain thing in this gray area, but I'm not just going to do that in a manner that is loving and kind. I'm actually going to be arrogant about it. I'm actually going to push it into people's faces that don't agree with me, and I'm going to belittle them when I have opportunity to. Um, it's, it really comes across in two different ways. I think you see it primarily through mocking other Christians who aren't like you. So if a Christian says, you know, I don't, I don't, behave, I don't act in a certain way. I don't do a certain thing. And you feel in your freedom you can, you, you mock that individual. I think the other place you see this really, and Paul again addresses this primarily in 1 Corinthians 8, and we'll get to it in uh, the next section, Romans 14, whenever that happens, probably two weeks with Eddie, but who knows at this point. The schedule's getting all jumbled around. You also see this when that that strong Christian who has that freedom tries to aggressively push somebody to agree with them and follow along with them. 
actually pushing someone to disobey their conscience in order to possibly make themselves feel better. It's interesting. I, I don't drink alcohol. Um, I don't have a conscience issue against it. I just don't do it. Um, it's not something I, I feel like I could go drink tonight after I preach and I would, my conscience would be perfectly clear. But I choose not to do it for my own particular reasons. And I've mentioned this to non-Christians before, and they don't have a problem with it. I'm out to dinner with them. I'm out after work with them. And it's like, oh, just you know, get a Sprite, have a Coke, whatever. It doesn't, doesn't matter. They don't care. I've mentioned this fact to other Christians before, and the response has been fairly negative, almost like there's something wrong with me because I don't believe like they do, and they feel comfortable to drink, and I don't, and it's not anyone here in case anyone's wondering. But I, I've had that reaction before where there's been a negative reaction, like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you drink? It's like, it's not something I want to do. I feel comfortable knowing that I could if I chose to, but I don't want to. And so we, we err on either of these. This doesn't necessarily distort the gospel. These people believe the gospel, but it diminishes the gospel. It takes something that God has laid out as a good plan for us and how to interact with anyone, and it actually messes that up. It, it makes things very messy. And it ultimately diminishes the gospel because we don't see unity happen there. If there's constant judgmentalism from one side and constant mockery and belittling from the other side, you're not going to have unity in that place. It won't happen. We move one more layer in, and this is where I think we get into the space where Paul would want us to operate. These middle three layers where, where it's Paul's real solution of love in these matters and, and explicitly what, what Justin laid out for us last week. That whether we are the weaker Christian who abstains from eating meat or we're the stronger Christian who indulges and eats the meat, regardless of position, the, the overwhelming response to the other side is one of love. It's one of love that says, I'm going to not be arrogant, I'm not going to be judgmental, but I'm actually going to love my stronger brother, love my stronger sister, love my weaker brother, love my weaker sister. And rather than diminishing or distorting the gospel, it actually showcases the gospel. It actually reveals the gospel to everyone because someone looks at us and says, you, you disagree and yet you're getting along. That's, that's weird. We'll talk a little bit about our culture in a minute, but that's not how our society operates currently. Final category is that one in the middle. And this is why I had you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I think this is where, as we grow in these concepts and we grow in these ideas, where Paul would ultimately want us to land, that the mature Christian is one that is flexible. They have a strong conscience. They see all of the different areas that God would allow them to operate in. And yet, depending on the circumstances, depending on the complexity of the situation, depending on the people they're with, they adjust their freedom accordingly. They adjust the things that they do in order to care for, help other people. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 23. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. 
To those outside the law, it became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And notice his words in verse 22. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all, why? For the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. That's the attitude of Paul. And think about who Paul was. He came from a background very different than ours. He becomes a Christian after years of being a Pharisee of Pharisees. If anyone dealt with having to walk through all of the implications of being a weaker brother, it was Paul. He had so many rules that he followed in his pre-Christian life. So many rules that he followed. Just as a Jewish man himself, he had all of these different rules. And then as a Pharisee, he had all these rules. So he was constantly having to work through and break down all of these different things that were preventing him from living in freedom that he had received in Christ. And so when he comes to this and he says, to the weak, I become weak. To the strong, I become strong. That is a mature perspective for someone. And that's ultimately what Paul would want us to do, to understand the complexities of the various situations we're in. We'll use an example. I mentioned alcohol already. We'll come back to it because it's easy and it's relevant. A mature Christian doesn't go out to eat or have someone over who they know abuses alcohol and sets a bottle of wine down in front of them and says, let's drink. That's not what a mature Christian does. A mature Christian, rather, exercises their freedom to not partake in something they know they are allowed to do. They have no conscience issue about it. They could drink that glass of wine, they could have that beer with no problems at all, but for the sake of the person sitting across the table from them, they are not going to do it. That is a mature Christian. That is a mature perspective. And ultimately one that as we grow in these areas is what we want to shoot for, where we're respectful of other people and we're respectful of where they are. And so it's not so much the idea that I have the freedom to do as I want, but I have the freedom to not do as I want as well. One other thing um, before we really get into Romans 14, and as we seek to be mature Christians in this area, as we seek to grow in this area, we have to know people. We have to actually know what they are like. We have to be engaged with and in community with people because if we're not, how are we ever going to know when to exercise and how to exercise the freedoms we've been given? If I have all this stuff figured out in my head, that's great, that's wonderful, but if we can't put it into practice because we're not actually engaging with people, we're, we're missing a huge component of what Paul's talking about. The writers of Scripture, Paul, Peter, James, whatever New Testament, Old Testament writer you want to talk about, they weren't just theorizing this stuff. They weren't just sitting in an ivory tower writing a bunch of things down as though they were all hypotheticals. They were dealing with people. Paul's addressing situations within the church. And so in the same way, as we exercise our freedoms, we should exercise them in community with one another, with the overall premise, the overall thought 
that our primary attribute, our primary goal is to love. So Paul's instruction to both the strong and the weak, if we look back at Romans 14, 1 through 4, is that rather than being judgmental and belittling, our attitude and our posture towards one another should be marked by love. And he says that we should welcome one another. He founds all of this in chapter 14, verse 3. He says, for God has welcomed him. So we welcome the weak, we welcome the strong, because God has welcomed the weak and God has welcomed the strong. Because guess what? We are the weak and we are the strong and God has welcomed us. So it's with that same posture of love, that same posture of welcoming that we want to look at verses 5 through 12 in Romans chapter 14. As we look through these verses, and I'm going to read them in a moment, I, I really want the general theme and the general flavor and the general idea of what we want to walk away with is that based on our union with Christ, we should seek to find unity in the church when we disagree over these non-essential and disputable matters. Based on our union with Christ, we should be seeking to find unity in the church where we disagree over these non-essential, disputable matters. Let's read verses 5 through 12, Romans 14. It says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one, will be fully, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it to the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. So why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account to himself for God. If we look specifically at verses 7 through 9, I think the foundation of all of this the foundation of this to work, if we want unity within our body, if we want to be that mature Christian who is flexible with how we utilize our freedoms, how we treat those who are stronger, those who are weaker, the foundation of all of these things is our union with Christ. What we're getting at here when we, we look at these verses, Paul's talking about all things, death and life. He's, he's providing this big comprehensive element to this big topic. He says everything in life, whether it's living or whether it's dying, all of these things, life and death, are all underneath of, of Christ. He is Lord of all. And notice what he says there at the end of verse 8. We are the Lord's. We are the Lord's. That, that idea there is that we, we belong to Christ. We belong to the Lord. So the, the foundation of all of this stuff that we were going to talk about, the foundation of how we do all of this stuff 
is because we are united to Christ. And so as I am united to Christ, and as Ford is united to Christ, and as Eddie is united to Christ, and as Elizabeth is united to Christ, as all of those things are, as all of us are united to Christ, we then are able to be united with one another. It doesn't happen without Jesus. It can't happen without Jesus. And so the only way for us The only ability we have to be united is because of what Christ has done. So our our mutual position is being united to Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we're going to accomplish this. And when I say seek to find unity, what what I said was the general theme is we should seek to find unity. What I don't mean is seek to find uniformity. Uniformity is when things look the same. You know, I, was, I had a surgery last month. I was in the hospital overnight, and there was a, a little placard right next to the bed, and it had different colored uniforms that all the different nurses would wear. There was red meant this type of person, blue meant this type, purple meant this type, and so on and so forth. So I knew, based on even the color of the shirt they were wearing, whether or not I could ask this person for juice, or whether or not I should have this person mess with the machine. So if the person with the red shirt comes in pulling plugs, I know that's a problem. They weren't supposed to be pulling plugs. Nobody was pulling plugs. That wasn't that bad. But you, you had this idea of what was happening because everybody looked how they were supposed to look. And sometimes when we get into this idea of unity, we get, in, we get this concept that all of us need to look the same. That all of us need to behave the same. That all of us need to be the same. But in reality, unity does not mean that we are going to all think and believe and act the same way. Unity is that all of us are different. And yet within that, there's still a mutual respect and a mutual love for one another. That's what unity looks like. That we still get along. That we still, in our disagreements, love each other. And yet we're comfortable with how we're different. You know, our, our culture, our society acts like they care about unity. They do. They, they will talk about that, that we want to have everybody unified. They're, they're real big now about these ideas of everybody being diverse and inclusive. And you hear these things and they sound good and there's some truth to some of the things they say. But... When you really dig into what the culture and the society is looking for, they're not looking for unity across different perspectives. They're looking for uniformity, that everyone follow and believe the same thing. And if you don't follow and believe the same thing, particularly within the public discourse, you're not allowed a part of it. So if you don't use the proper words, you're excluded from society. There doesn't seem to be room within our broader culture, especially... I know, I think every person who's preached up here has said social media is a cesspool. I'm using that for my word. Not everybody has used the word cesspool. I'm using cesspool. But if you get on there, there is no unity within those those contexts and within those platforms. Not a single piece of unity can be found there. You can find some echo chambers where everybody gets along, but those are usually few and far between. 
But in, in our broader culture, in the public discourse, to have disagreement and yet still be respectful is not something that happens. It doesn't happen anymore because the prevailing culture of our time, specifically within our country, but I would say it's broader than just our country, is that everybody needs to think and act the same way. And if you don't think and you don't act the same way, you're out. That is not the church. The church is the complete opposite of that. The church is distinct because what we read in Romans 14 is that we can disagree on sometimes important topics, non-essential topics, but important topics, and we can still have a mutual respect, love, and care for one another. We can still seek to grow in righteousness with one another as we grow in our faith and we move from weaker to stronger and we seek to get into that middle category that we talked about of being flexible and mature. All of those things can happen in the midst of all of our disagreement. Why? Because the one central component that we have, Jesus Christ, is what binds us together, is what unifies us together. The world doesn't have that. The church has that, but the world does not. It's a challenging thing, though, because when you get into this topic of disagreement and unity, it's, it's hard. It's not an easy thing to do. And so I think Paul gives us three helpful ways to actually seek to do this. The first one is that we need to be aware of our conscience and we need to obey it. We need to be aware of our conscience and we need to obey it. The second way we can seek to do this is that we assume the best of others and we believe that they are living to glorify God. We assume the best of others and believe they're living to glorify God. And the third way we can seek to do this is that we remember that God is both judge and king, not us. So that first, that first way to be aware of our conscience, to be aware of our conscience and obey it, we see that in verse 5. Paul begins verse 5 and he, he brings up another topic. First it was eating meat versus not eating meat. Now it's about whether or not to celebrate certain days and value certain days over other days. Probably what this relates to is some Jewish understanding of holy days, that, that Jewish Christians were still acknowledging Sabbath and Passover as being more important and better than the other days that were there. And then you had Gentile Christians who were saying, no, I can worship God, whether it's Sabbath, whether it's not Sabbath, whether it's Passover, whether it's not Passover, it doesn't matter. But you had this conflict growing. And Paul comes along and he says, you have one person esteeming one day as better than another. You have another person who esteems all days alike. And then notice what he says. He says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. We can substitute for meat versus not meat, for days versus not days. We can substitute whatever topic present day that's relevant to us. The principle is exactly the same. Each of us should be convinced in our own minds. This isn't what we would expect Paul to say. If I were Paul, and I'm not, and thankfully for all of you and for everyone who's read the Bible, I am not Paul. Because I would have said, days, not days, who cares? Doesn't matter. Not a big deal. Stop sweating the small stuff. Move on to bigger things. That's not what Paul says, though. We would expect Paul to just say, chill out and relax. Who cares about this stuff? You're making big deal out of little stuff. 
And sometimes we do make a big deal out of little stuff. But Paul isn't saying, don't have an opinion about these things. In fact, what he's saying is, you should have a strong opinion, a strong conviction about all of these things. But within that strong opinion and within that strong conviction, he wants us to demonstrate, as we've seen, an attitude and a posture of love. That is infinitely harder than just saying, don't care and don't talk about all the things that you disagree about. That is so much harder. But when it's done right, it is so much more beautiful. The idea of being fully convinced in our own minds is really the idea of our conscience. I think we can define our conscience as this. It is your awareness of what you believe to be right and wrong. I think that's a fair definition of our conscience. It's what our aware, your awareness of what you believe to be right and wrong. So each of us has a conscience. All of us do. The problem is, where we get into these disagreements is, not all of us have the same conscience. No two people have the same conscience. No, no two people's conscience will ever be 100% aligned. Hopefully you can see this. If not, I'll describe it. There's a couple of triangles here. You have... I know that was profound. You got two triangles on the screen. I see my wife laughing at me because I said I'm going to describe two triangles. Hopefully you know what triangles are. There's two triangles on the screen. The one triangle, the larger one, represents the the weaker Christian. They They have more things that they're wrestling through that they're not sure about whether they can participate in. The smaller of the two triangles is representative of the stronger Christian, someone who has less things that they're working through, They have more things in their freedom that they're willing to do, able to do. Those two triangles are intersecting. You have areas of of those triangles that they, they match up and they mirror because the weaker and the stronger, they believe similar things. You have areas where they, they don't intersect because the weaker and the stronger don't agree in a particular area. So you can see these things don't fully align. And it's important to know as we think about how we develop our conscience, how we become fully convinced that we're leaving room in these areas, in these areas here and around the edges, we're leaving room in those areas for disagreement. And we're comfortable with that. Because as we become aware of what our conscience is and we seek to obey it, we have to be allowing room for others to differ from us. To develop our conscience is not to develop this idea that our way is the only way to honor God. If if we're coming at this in this effort to develop our conscience and be aware of our conscience and saying, I'm going to develop the way that is the only way to truly honor God and avoid sin in these particular disputable matters, we are off base. Again, we'll come back to We're not talking about core issues. We're not talking about central issues to the gospel. We're talking about non-essential, disputable matters. By being fully convinced, I believe we're saying three things. The first one is that if I'm saying I'm fully convinced of something, I am saying that what I'm doing is not sinful. But that's not enough because the other element of this is what I'm doing is also honoring to God. In our freedom, it's not enough to just say, is this sinful? 
No, I'm going to go ahead and do it. The second qualification of that is, is this something that God would actually desire me to do? And so I'm going to pursue this thing. It's going to be honorable to him. And the third thing is, I'm fully convinced that what I'm doing is the best way for me to live right now. And this could be anything. Again, we could go through tons of different topics. Justin went through a lot of them last week. We could be talking about entertainment, whether it's TV, movies, music, alcohol use. Even now, as it becomes more common and becomes more legal, the use of marijuana medicinally. Or if you're in a certain state, not medicinally, recreationally. Our political beliefs, guns, education, baptism, the role of elders, all these different topics. But the message that we're trying to develop and the message that we should be developing is that we are seeking to form what our conscience is and then obey it. Because the problem for Paul is not so much whose conscience says what, but your conscience says this, listen to it. A few practical questions for us. How do I even start to develop a conscience? You might not even know. All all of us have one in one way, shape, or form. You go back to Romans 1. Everyone is aware in their conscience that there is a God. It's the, the base level for God's wrath to be justified against all people. But how do we even develop now as Christians? How do we even begin to form and develop our conscience? There's a book called Ethics for a Brave New World. It's by John and Paul Feinberg. They write eight different questions that we can ask to formulate our conscience. They're up here. Um, If you'd like them afterwards, we're not going to go through all of them. Some of them we'll cover later in this sermon. Some of them Eddie will actually probably cover at some, not these questions specifically, but the general topics he'll cover when he goes through the rest of Romans 14. But one of them that I want to look at is that very first one. How do we develop our conscience? Am I fully persuaded? This really gets down to the matter of if we should start or if we should continue in certain activities. When we have doubts, when we're unsure, when our conscience is telling us, nah, this is probably not a good thing to do, are we fully convinced, are we fully persuaded that this thing we're involving ourselves in is actually right for us. Let's say we relate it back to entertainment. Someone tells us about a a TV show that we should watch. They think we would really enjoy it. We start to watch this and we come across, this has a lot of violence in it. It says a lot of violence, a lot of gore, and your conscience in that moment says, I'm the weaker brother here. I'm the weaker brother in this moment. I I don't feel comfortable. I don't think it's right for me to continue to watch a show that has a lot of violence. What do you do? Very practically, you turn the TV off. But do you continue to watch it? No. Do you continue to watch it? The answer to that, if your conscience is bothered, is no. Not because God says the content itself is bad, but because your conscience is bothered by it. And for Paul, to violate and go against our conscience is sin. Paul says that very clearly. Eddie's going to talk about this in a couple weeks. What does not come from faith is sin. It's very clear in Scripture. So whether your friend 
presumably has a clear conscience about this, and they're able to watch this television show with this violence, if their conscience is clear, they are free to do so before God. You, however, with your conscience that is not clear, you are not free to do so, because if you engage in that, it is sin. It's clear from Scripture. So when we think about what about these levels of doubt that we can have in our lives, if we are not firmly established, that very first question, if we are not fully persuaded of something, the direction we should go is to not do that thing until we become fully persuaded that it's okay. And we'll get into what that looks like and how that happens in a minute. But we should never get into a thing that says, you know, that, that violence in that TV show, it, it goes against my conscience, but, you know, I'm just going to keep watching it until it becomes more comfortable for me. That's not the right behavior. That's not the right way to go. The last thing that Paul would want us to do is to do something, whatever behavior it might be, the last thing Paul would want us to do is to actually engage in those things violate our conscience, and sin. Second question we would have to consider, and again, I'm not going through all of these. We'll get to some of them. The second question we would have to consider is not just the issue of how do I develop a conscience, but what do I do when my conscience tells me I'm wrong? This is, this is kind of sort of connected to the first question, but slightly different where we're not just trying to develop how we do this, and so we're answering these questions, but we're actually engaged in an activity where our conscience now says, this is wrong. You shouldn't do this anymore. And this is going to happen because as we grow in grace, as we grow in our faith, our conscience becomes more sensitive. It naturally does. Because as we begin to expose ourselves to the word of God and truth and things that come into our lives, our conscience may begin to question the different activities and the things that we're involved in. And so we need to adjust. Another slide. There's three triangles now instead of two. You get three. The bigger triangle is God's conscience. It's not, it will never match ours. Our goal should be to have our conscience match his. That's what our desire is. There's going to be places where we overlap with what God would want us to do. There's going to be places where it doesn't overlap what God would want us to do. We will never perfectly match God's conscience, but that's what we should be striving for. So there are times where our conscience comes in and says, you're wrong here. Something's off. And so our response to that should be to not engage in that behavior, not engage in that activity, and spend time studying through and working through how do we adjust our conscience? Is it, is it truly that I should stop this activity permanently because it would violate my conscience? Or is God showing me different things and, and growing my faith in a way that maybe I can continue in this once my conscience becomes, kind of catches up to what I'm doing? It's easy in this space, though, as we think about our conscience, and we compare our conscience to God's, it's easy in this space to become very discouraged. The reason for that is because we're never going to live up, we're never going to get to the big triangle, this side of heaven. It won't happen. And so we become discouraged, we become frustrated. 
And we, we really despair in a way because we're constantly seeking to grow in our faith. And the more we grow in our faith and the more we see our sin, the more our conscience accuses us and says, look, look how wicked you are. Look how evil you are. You know, there's a, a scene in Pilgrim's Progress. I think some of you have read it. Hopefully you have. If you haven't, I would encourage you to read it. It's a very good allegorical story written by John Bunyan hundreds of years ago that's still very relevant for today. There's a scene in Pilgrim's Progress where the character Apollyon actually comes to Christian and he begins to accuse him of all the things he's done wrong. He says, you, you, know, you almost slipped up and went back. You almost fainted because you were so tired of walking under this burden. You, you almost gave up multiple times. You grew depressed. There were times where you were trying to, in this journey of yours, actually take the glory for yourself instead of giving it to the prince. John Bunyan writes these words through this character Christian. And he says, all of this is true. So he says to Apollyon, everything you said is true. And much more that you've even failed to mention. But the prince who I now serve and honor, he is merciful and ready to forgive. You know, in, in the midst of all of this, where we're seeking to develop our conscience and our, our conscience begins to weigh heavily on us and begins to actually make us despair and become discouraged, our response to our conscience or the devil or another person who's accusing us is, you're right, I am, I am bad, I am wicked, I've done more things than you can even say that I've done, but Jesus Christ is ready to forgive. That's the truth of the gospel. So when we get into these discussions, I, I don't want us to become paralyzed by, am I doing right? Is my conscience being violated? And we're constantly in this game of growing discouraged as we try to grow in our faith. Yes, we need to be sensitive to our conscience. We need to follow it. We need to be aware of it and obey it. We need to seek to develop it and enhance it. But we should never be paralyzed by it to the point that we, we don't even act. We don't even know what to do. We become discouraged because where we slip up and where we violate our conscience, there is always grace for that. There's always Jesus on the back end of that that says, I'm here to forgive you. Here's mercy. Here's grace that you need for help. Final question we can ask is, how do we adjust our conscience to match God's conscience? I think we could call this calibrating our conscience. It's the idea that we're going to adjust things when God reveals to us that our conscience has been either incorrectly restricting us or our conscience has been incorrectly allowing us to participate in things that we shouldn't have. This happens through two ways. First one is education and the truth. What, what dictates our conscience, what drives and informs our conscience is not the world, it is not our perspectives, it is not our feelings, it is the word of God. That is what should drive our conscience and how we develop it. So if the word of God is pointing us and we believe that it's saying we should operate in X way, we operate in X way. If we believe the scripture is telling us to do A and we're going to go do B, that's a problem. Because we're violating our conscience and we're violating what we believe scripture is saying us, telling us to do. 
So we educate with the truth and we recognize that this takes time. I mentioned Paul earlier. Paul didn't write Romans the minute he became a Christian. In fact, Paul didn't write anything the minute he became a Christian. He went away for years. Nobody saw him for years as he's studying and learning. Finally comes back on the scene and it's like, all right, who's this guy? Completely different person. He took years of developing these concepts and these things. Obviously, he is informed and he is, all of these things he's writing is God who is conveying these things to him. But he took time to be educated in the truth and to learn how to develop his conscience how to calibrate his conscience to be what God would want him to be. I would say, too, that this should happen in community. As we calibrate our conscience, as we seek to grow in our faith and grow in grace, and as we seek to figure out, is, is A okay for me to do? Is B okay for me to do? Am I allowed to do this? Am I not allowed to do this? We should be doing it all within the context of our community. That doesn't have to be everybody in the church, but it should be someone from our church who's able to walk alongside us and help us. Someone in your GCC, someone you're connected to who's able to guide you and help you to be informed in the truth and take the time you need to correct and, and go about the right way to do things. Our goal, as stated earlier, was the unity that we find in the church would be displayed out of our union with Christ. We've already talked about the first way. The first way to do that is be aware of your conscience and obey it. Second way, assume the best of others and believe they are living to glorify God. Look at verse six. The one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. You see Paul's generous spirit to both sides here. And this is not an easy thing for us. This is not an easy thing for us. Because part of our conscience, is, again, is trying to determine if something is honoring to the Lord. So when we come to that conclusion that, that A is honoring to the Lord and that's what we're going to do, and then we see people doing the opposite of that, we struggle there. It, it messes with us. But what Paul says is that those who have strong convictions and those who have less strong convictions, those who, those who are stronger in their faith and those who are weaker in their faith, they are still operating in honor to the Lord. So as we approach them and as we engage in those conversations and we engage in these disagreements, our perspective should be one of assumption, not that they are dishonoring God, but in fact that they are honoring God. It's very hard for us because we want to say what I'm doing is the only way to honor God. And in reality, what we need to do is step back and say, no, there are, there are multiple paths to bring glory to God. So our, our assumption should be that people have come to the conclusions they've come to out of rigorous study and out of time and in community and through what they have studied, through what they have learned, they are actually in the position to honor God with the decision that they've made, even if it's different than ours. I grew up in a Christian fundamentalist background. 
independent fundamental Baptists for anyone who are familiar with the terminology. I got like two people who probably are like, I can relate to that in this room. There were rules for everything. And if you're like, yeah, I had rules too. You didn't have rules like these rules. The way you dressed for worship. How, how long your hair was. Not a problem for me now. Was a problem for me when I was 12. How long your hair was. Women not being allowed to wear pants. Music only being hymns or classical music. You don't go to the movie theaters. You don't go swimming with someone of the opposite gender. You don't engage in any type of activity. I remember being in gym class in probably fifth grade. I wasn't allowed to wear shorts. had to wear pants. I grew up in this environment really from the day I was born until got out of college. I had rules for when I could wear certain shoes at certain times of days. And you're all like, what kind of nutcase place did you go to? I'm like, yep, I get it. Eddie's still upset that they didn't allow drums. He doesn't get it. He's like, they didn't allow drums? What do you mean? Now, the problem within that is not so much that they had all these convictions, although I think they were wrong for some of the convictions they had. The problem was that they were very judgmental about it. To the point that they believed that if you didn't follow all the rules, you were actually an unfaithful Christian, if you were a Christian at all. So you engage in these activities, and if you don't, you're clearly bad. To the point that you go to a Christian camp, and if you didn't want to play the games like all the other kids, because all the other kids are annoying, you were actually like, bad attitude, probably not a Christian, needs to get saved. Meanwhile, you're 12, and you don't really feel like playing a game. That actually didn't happen to me. I know that happened to a few people. But these were the types of levels of judgmentalism that were there. Judgmentalism, completely wrong. Even the standards and convictions they have, I would say, are wrong. However, that is the standard and the conviction that they have. And I have to assume, as a fellow Christian to these individuals, and this is something I had to learn because it wasn't something that I picked up right away, I have to assume that they're doing those things in honor to the Lord. That they're seeking to uphold all of these different standards and convictions and all these rules as a way to actually honor God in some particular way. I didn't get that at first when I moved out of that environment. I was mocking, I would belittle, I would make fun of, I would call into question whether or not they even understood scripture. But as we grow in our faith, and as we look at someone who's weaker, in this case, they are the weaker of the Christians, they're not willing to do all of these things, I have to walk away and say, my assumption is you want to honor God. You want to bring glory to God in some capacity. And so who am I to come alongside and belittle and mock someone who's seeking to honor God? And that goes both ways. The weaker of the Christian should never look on someone who is indulging or engaging in these non-essential matters, these disputable things, and saying, you just probably don't love God enough. If you love God enough, then you would follow what I'm doing. No, they are seeking to honor God with the way they're living. That should be our assumption. So in our church, as we look around and we see different people with different opinions, I think the question we should ask ourselves is, 
How are we doing within our community here? How are we doing with not assuming the worst of people? With not assuming that the person's engaging in certain activity just because they're not good Christians. And if they were a better Christian, they wouldn't do that thing. How are we doing with not assuming the worst of others? When you see someone doing something that you disagree with, does your mind immediately go to questioning their motives and questioning their character? Or does your mind go to, you know, maybe they're just working out how to glorify God in their bodies. If someone does question you, if you're the, the recipient of being questioned, I would say this, do you immediately react negative? Do you respond to that person's questioning of you with an immediate assumption that they're judging you? Or do you give them grace and say, maybe they're just asking to figure out why I live the way that I live? Because it goes both ways. Stronger Christian, weaker Christian, we should never assume we know what's in the intent and the motives in the heart of an individual. We should go into those situations always assuming the best. Now, I, I do want to reiterate, and I've done this a couple of times, and I think it's important for us. We're not talking about critical things. We're not talking about core central things of the gospel. We're also not talking about sin when we're talking about this. If someone has come to you and said, you know what, my conscience struggles and I can't touch alcohol. I, I don't want to drink it. It's something that I've abused in the past. My conscience is bothered by it. And you see them reaching the cooler at the barbecue or order the glass of wine at dinner. We should question them. Not harshly, not aggressively. With grace, we should challenge them and say, has something changed in your conscience? Or are you just giving in to this compulsion or this desire, because those are two very different things. If their conscience has changed, free to do, go and do. If their conscience hasn't changed and they're violating their conscience, it is right and it is good for us as fellow Christians seeking to have someone grow in their faith to challenge them to not commit sin. We have a responsibility to do that to one another. And ultimately, when we do come to the point where we are not questioning the motives of other people and we are assuming the best of people, what it does is it, it removes us from a place of judgment. And that leads us to our, our third and final way we seek to find unity in the church. The first is we are aware of our conscience and we obey it. The second is that we assume the best of others and believe they're living to glorify God. And that third one is that we remember that God is both judging king and not us. If we look at verses 10 through 12, Romans 14 says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. It's so easy for us to take the position of judge over other people. All of us has a gavel, and all of us likes to look down on others and pronounce judgment. It's natural to us as sinful human beings. We do it internally in our heads and our hearts. We do it externally with our words and our actions, and it's easy for us to play this game of speck and beam, if you're familiar with Matthew chapter 7. You, you go around and you see the pieces of sawdust in other people's eyes. Meanwhile, there's a two-by-four hanging out of yours. 
And when someone says, well, what about the two by four in yours? Don't worry about that. That's not a big deal. We're talking about this speck of sawdust in your eye. That's what we're interested in right now. We tend to be far more worried about the sins of other people than our own sin. And when we do that, we miss the fact that our, that our attitude towards different people may actually be worse than whatever it is that we think they're doing in sin. Have we ever thought about that? Our attitude towards other people when we come at them in judgment is actually worse than whatever sin we think they're committing. We are wrong for this. If we try to sit in position as judge over others in the church, what we're trying to actually do is fulfill a role that was never meant for us. The role of judge is meant for one person and one person alone, and that is God. He is the judge of all the earth, and as judge, he will do right. We are not judge of other people. It's a role only God fulfills, and it's, it's a position that he has based solely on who he is. He's the creator. Verse 9 of this chapter tells us that Jesus is the Lord of both the dead and the living. He's the one in charge. You notice verse 11 says, every knee shall bow. Not every knee will bow to me. Not every knee will bow to you. Every knee will bow to one, and that is God and God alone. God is our judge. God is our king. And instead of debating our own opinions and, and dialoguing about how we've come to our different conclusions and how we've developed our own conscience, what we end up doing is actually criticizing and destroying others through judging them. A couple of questions we can only really answer for ourselves, and as the Spirit asks us, why do we judge other people? What is it about us that, that judges other people? And again, these are things you can only answer for yourself because everyone's different. Why do we judge other people? Is there an individual or a group that you tend to judge more than others? Is there a person that, that when I say don't judge other people, comes to your mind and says, yeah, no, I, I do get a little judgy with them sometimes. If there is someone that you don't get along with, someone that you've had conflict with, someone that you have strife with, maybe you even dislike or you hate that person, I would venture to say all of those feelings and all of those things really started in your mind when you judged that person. You don't just wake up one day and say, Eddie, I hate you. It just doesn't happen. That, that comes about, not that I hate Eddie, but that idea comes about because it started internally when we judged a person in our minds and then possibly judged a person with our words and eventually that dislike for that person grew. And ultimately it's because we judged that person and began to question their motives and question their character. Paul's message for us is to not do that because what he says there, all of us will stand before the judgment seat of God. We're busy looking at the sawdust in everyone else's eyes and we have a two by four sticking out of our eyes and we stand before God who is our judge one day and, and it says in verse 12, we will give an account to God of ourselves. 
I won't stand before God giving an account for anything that you have ever done. You will never stand before God giving an account of anything that I have ever done. We stand before God giving an account of the things that we have done on our choices and our conscience, not the conscience of the person sitting next to you. So rather than looking down in judgment at others, ready to hammer them, we should be looking up at Jesus, the true judge, the true king of this whole world. And if we were to say to Jesus, judge me, the list of all of our wrongs would be so incredibly long, we wouldn't have time to judge other people. If we focused all of our attention, all of our mental energies, all of our lives trying to fix ourselves rather than fix everyone else, we wouldn't have time to fix anyone else. We would be so busy working on developing our own conscience and and working on ourselves to love Christ more rather than working on everyone else. We said to Jesus, judge me, he would say, here's your pride, here's your self-righteousness. Here's your selfishness. Here's your bad attitude. Here's all of these things. And how wonderful would it be if instead of looking in judgment on other people, we came to one another and said, here's how God's working in my life. How can I be praying for you that God would be working in your life? Here are the things that Jesus is teaching me as he works to transform this wicked person. What are the things that Jesus is teaching you as he works to transform you. How incredible that would be rather than, look at how you screwed up again. Very different attitudes. We aren't going to be sitting next to God one day. I, I can picture people thinking in their minds, well, God's going to be on a throne judging everyone else and I'm going to kind of be sitting right next to him, looking down on everybody. That's not going to happen. What he says is all of us will be facing the dirt, facing the ground, bowing before our king, bowing before our judge. And God is our judge. He is that because that is who he is. That is his rightful place. And it's been validated. It's been validated at his place as judge and as king through Jesus Christ who sacrificed himself for us. You see, we wouldn't even be in the position to properly even diagnose and develop our conscience if it wasn't for Jesus. If it wasn't for the fact that he died on the cross for our sins, we wouldn't even be in a position to live in unity with one another. His death on the cross for us means that when we trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, we will stand before the judgment seat of God. But that sentence from Jesus, that sentence from God is not one of condemnation because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We will bow before God because he is our king. We will confess Jesus. The word probably there is praise Jesus. We will offer praise to Jesus because he is our Lord. And we will do it because of what he has done for us. We will not be condemned. And as we seek to find unity at Eternal City Church, we should do it because of the union we have with that Jesus who no longer condemns us. As we seek to grow and mature in our faith, we do so knowing that Jesus is the one who is working and empowering through the Holy Spirit to mature us. 
and as we seek to grow and mature and develop our conscience, our attitudes towards one another should be one of love, should be one where we value relationships with others more than we value our own opinions. That's that flexible middle category that they value the relationships they have with people more than they value their own freedoms. And that we do all of these things for one common goal and one common purpose, to display the union with God that we have through the unity that we have together in the church. One of the ways we display unity in the church is by taking communion. And we do this every week. We do this as one church. We do this together collectively. And we do it as a reminder, a tangible reminder of the sacrifice Jesus made for us, that a holy and a perfect God humbled himself, joined us in creation, and was brutally killed so that when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sin, but he actually sees Jesus and his sacrifice made in our place. So the communion cups are coming around. I would encourage anyone, if you have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, please participate with us. We would welcome you to participate with us. Um, Understanding and knowing that it is not our own righteousness that saves us, but it is the righteousness of Jesus that saves us. Elizabeth's going to lead us in one song, and then we'll come back together, and we will take communion together as one church.